Well, good morning. My name is Joe Swords, and uh, I uh, have been around Riv in and out uh, for, I guess now it's been uh, just over 11 years. Uh, when we uh, started planting the Exchange Church in Clio around that time, uh, uh, just over 11 years ago, I started a residency uh, in the church planning residency that was running at that time here. Uh, at Riverview, and then I was able, uh, by God's grace, to plant and then pastor the Exchange Church for just over uh, 11 years, and uh, it was actually toward the end of 2022, my wife and I made the decision that it was time for us to begin uh, bringing our time there to a close and transitioning out of that, and so this morning, I guess I'm just a guy loved by Jesus who has an amazing wife and five wonderful sons who's standing up here uh, teaching Uh, God's word to you, and I'm very happy to uh, be able to be back here uh, as we open up uh, Colossians together. So as you heard just a few moments ago, uh, we will be in Colossians. Uh, This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had uh, not met these individuals, but he did probably know the church planter. You met him a little bit last week if you were here, as you heard about Epaphras, Uh, The guy who labors hard, you read about this in chapter 4, labors hard for uh, the believers in Colossae as he prays for them. And which is fitting, uh, the way that Paul describes that there in chapter 4, because as we come here in chapter 1, we enter into a prayer. And as uh, you heard toward the beginning of the service, as we're walking through this letter, what you're going to see and hear are various if-then statements. If certain things are true about you, then other things will follow from that. And we see that in uh, that pivotal uh, turning point within the letter there in chapter 3 where the, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, so if you have been raised with Christ... We could insert the word, then seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." If these things are true of you, then these other things will be true of you. And part of that process is that you, throughout the course of your life, as you seek to follow after Jesus, as you trust the work that he has done on the cross, you will be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And this is what we find the Apostle Paul praying uh, as we go into this section here this morning. And so if you like to take notes, uh, we'll put this under the big idea of the gospel cycle of sanctification. The gospel cycle of sanctification. We could put it into three statements uh, that the Apostle Paul prays for them that they would know deeply, that they would walk worthily, remembering you belong to the kingdom of the Son. Now, as we work through this uh, passage here, from it really starts back there in verse 3 and then runs through verse 14, as the Apostle Paul is telling the church, this is how I'm praying for you. And it's a fantastic model for prayer, because what you find in verses 3 through 8, he's talking about how he prays prayers of thanksgiving for them. And then, from verses 9 through 14, we hear his petition, the things that he's asking God for. This is very typical of models of Christian prayer, thanksgiving 
and petition. Lord, thank you for these things that you have done and the work that you are doing. And Lord, would you please do these other things? And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is uh, telling the church in Colossae. This is how I'm giving thanks, and this is what I'm asking for you. Now, before we move on any further, if you're not familiar with church or uh, Christianese religious sort of talk, and we all of a sudden have this $10 theological word that I threw in here, the gospel cycle of sanctification, what does that word sanctification mean? Well, the word sanctification means this process of change is one of the ways in the New Testament when you encounter it, the way in which God slowly, over the course of a person's life, transforms them more and more into who they were meant to be in Christ, makes them to be more like Christ. There's another way that it gets used where uh, we can talk about the way that God sets aside someone in a holy or pure way for himself, but that's not how we're using it this morning. The way that we're focusing on it this morning is that we are being transformed in a cyclical sort of way throughout the course of our life more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Now, uh, if you haven't yet, I'll give us a little bit of an illustration to, to, to set the groundwork of where we're going. If you haven't yet bought into the uh, electric car revolution, uh, you can go out, even today, you could go out, you could pop the the uh, hood of your car, and you could open it up there, and in the middle, you would probably see this uh, plastic something or other covering uh, the engine where the combustion chamber is, and it would maybe be vibrating a little bit as long as your car is running. And if you were to just look off to one side or the other of your engine, you would see uh, these uh, pulleys. Uh, turning in there, and there would be some belts that are running around there, and, and those are very important. Uh, they run things like your air conditioning, your power steering, and that is the end of my car knowledge. They do other things too, I have no idea what they do. And so you have this source of energy in the middle that's driving everything, but you also have external evidences that there is power working, and that's what we're going to see as we walk through this gospel cycle of sanctification. There are the external evidences of sanctification, but there is a power that sits behind that, and we'll explore that uh, throughout the Apostle Paul's prayer this morning. And so we'll just jump right in here to uh, verse 9 as we begin to hear the way that he prays for the church. He says in verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding. And so the Apostle Paul is telling them that he's heard some things. You heard about these last week, that they have believed the gospel by faith, that they have begun to love other believers. And he's heard these things about them, and so he's been giving thanks, but now he's telling them we are asking God for something very specific. You see that there. In the middle of verse 9, he says, We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so here we encounter the fact that he is praying that we would know deeply. That we would know deeply. Well, what is he praying that we would know deeply? You see it there in the text. That we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Whose will? God's will that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, this is a big concept. Uh, for some, it is mysterious. A quick search, I was able to pull up roughly 7,000 books written on this topic. Uh, for others, it's obsolete because you already have your own will. 
And you have your own purpose. So why should you want God's will and God's purpose? Which it sort of makes sense maybe in a room like this, in a city like this, that some of us might feel that this is a little bit of a marginal concept because we probably shared between all of us in this room have enough degrees and certificates to fill a fairly large volume if we were to put them all together. Add to that all the years of work experience and we could fill volumes of instruction manuals. We already have a lot of knowledge. We already know what we want to do. We have our will. And so as we enter into this, we begin to see this tension that comes between our own hearts and and what the Apostle Paul is praying for us. And as he prays for us, what he's praying for us is that we would begin to understand a purpose that that is greater than our own uh, because it is the purpose of our Creator. It is the ultimate purpose, the fulfilling purpose that far surpasses any will or purpose that we would set for ourselves. Paul is praying that we would know a cosmological purpose, a state of being purpose. But he isn't just praying that we would gain a body of knowledge like we needed to do to gain a degree or asking that we would grasp a religious instruction manual. Instead, he is praying for a permeating sort of knowledge. And we see that in the phrase where he says that he prays that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Not just that we would know his will as this thing over here, but that we would actually be filled with that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. As we think about God's will, we need to set a baseline for what does this mean? Is it something that is mysterious that means that we have to go out into the woods and walk around and wait for a leaf to fall in a particular way to then have a certain sense and feeling in ourselves so that we then know what God's will is? I would say no, that is not the baseline where we begin to think about God's will. Instead, we turn and we look at his revealed will. Something that we can hold in our hands and know. Let me give you a couple of examples. You can find these right here in this letter that Paul wrote. Here is God's revealed will. For those of us who are in Christ, he says this in Colossians 3, 13. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul, speaks of forgiveness. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And so if you have relationships that have tension, the Lord has called you to forgive. That's God's will for your life. God's revealed will also speaks to the gathering of believers. In verse 16 of chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. As you gather together here, as you enter into RIV communities, let it dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all spiritual wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with gratitude in your hearts. God's revealed will is that you would be part of a local body, a community of believers where these things are taking place. God's revealed will also speaks to our family relationships. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18, it begins by writing to wives. He says, wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. This is God's revealed will for the family. So if you've wondered, what is God's will for my life? Are you married? 
Well, if you're a wife, submit to your husband. If you're a husband, love your wife. If you're a child, obey your parents. If you're a parent, don't exasperate your children. That's God's will for your life. It also speaks, uh, God also speaks in his revealed will to our workplace relationships. In chapter three, starting in verse 22, he says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. And then in chapter four, verse one, he says, masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now we don't exist in the complex relationship between masters and slaves and bond servants and servants that existed in the Roman Empire at this time, but we understand the concept of an employee and a manager or a business owner and those people that he has in his employment. And so God's revealed will speaks into your workplace experience. And so there you have it. There's God's will that you would forgive, that you would gather with believers for what your family looks like and what it looks like in your workplace. There we have it, we're done, easy, right? No, it's not. And the Apostle Paul understands this in the midst of his prayer. Look at the way that he prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. He prays that we would be filled, he says two things, that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. All wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why is this important? It's important because I am married to Ashley Christine. And Ashley is unique in her own way. And I need to love her as Ashley needs to be loved. If you are a husband, your wife is different than my wife. And you need to learn how to love your wife. You need the wisdom of God and the understanding of the Spirit to know how that works. Your relationships with other brothers and sisters within the local church look different than my relationships with other brothers and sisters in the local church. You need God's wisdom and the Spirit's understanding to know how do you engage in those relationships. And we can take this and work this through all of the ways that Paul shows God's revealed will. Now we have to take the steps to begin. We need God to give us the understanding and the wisdom. How does this actually work itself out within the local church, within my family, and within the workplace? We are in need of God's wisdom and his understanding. Understanding that is greater than our understanding. A wisdom that is not of our spirit, but of God's spirit. Now a few moments ago, I said that the Apostle Paul prays for a permeating knowledge of God's will. In the phrase, you see it there, in the phrase where he says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. What does this mean? Does this mean then that all of the experiences, all of the education, all of the certification classes, that we need to jettison all of those out of our lives and just fill up our lives with the knowledge of God's will? No, it it doesn't mean that at all. I really like too much uh, chocolate chip cookies. it's always dangerous to do one of these illustrations about food this point of the sermon because I could lose you, so you have to stay with me. Don't just think about cookies from here on out. And, and to add a very flavorful pecan or a walnut to that is just, mm, just perfect. And so I have to limit myself because, you know, I'm getting older and I, the metabolism is a little lower than what it was, but I love these things. And so I will bake them from time to time and, 
uh, and, and work through these. And sometimes I like to experiment a little bit with, uh, with the recipe. And I came across this recipe that called for just a very little bit of cinnamon. It was like a half a teaspoon or something of cinnamon to put in there. And I thought, well, let's try that and I'll uh, add that in. And, and so I, I, I sprinkled it over as I mixed everything together. And then after it was baked and done and I began to eat the cookies, the first thought was, wow, this tastes like a Christmas cookie. But then I just began to notice as I savored the cookie that in every part of it, in the, in the chocolatey part and in the, in the walnuty part and in the good cookiness part, that I could taste a little bit of the cinnamoniness in every single part. Now, typically, when I have a cookie, I don't think to myself when I take a bite, I don't think, boy, this sure tastes flowery. <laughs> I don't think to myself when I take a bite, boy, this sure tastes like a stick of butter. Even though those things are there, what is happening when that little bit of cinnamon goes into the cookie, it fills the cookie. It doesn't push anything out of the cookie, but it fills the whole thing and adds to the flavorfulness of the cookie. And this is the same idea of what the Apostle Paul is praying for the church, is that in whatever field, in whatever family, in whatever church that you are, that you would be that, that all of the knowledge and everything that you have in your experiences would be filled up and flavored with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is for a purpose. This is the big ask. God, will you please do this? And then he's going to say, for what purpose? You see this with the beginning words there in verse 10, so that... He is going to move in the direction of telling us why. Why should we be filled in this way? He prays these things from verse 10 through the beginning of verse 12. Listen to what he says. He says, he prays this, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. So we now move from knowing fully to walk worthily. The Apostle Paul prays that we would walk worthy in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. This is the natural response of those who have been raised with Christ. As we are filled up with knowing God, we've received the gifts of grace, of knowing his will and the spiritual understanding in his will, our lives will begin to be transformed into his likeness. And we see the cyclical nature of that in the midst of these verses in verse 10 there where he prays that we would be growing in the knowledge of God. Well, this begins to cycle back to knowing his will. That, that we would be knowing his will that would then lead to us knowing him more, that would then lead to us knowing his will. There's a cycle taking place that is beginning to change us into who we were created to be. And so what does it mean to walk worthily? To walk worthy of the Lord? Well, we see the way that the Apostle Paul defines this. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, if you've been at RIV for a little while, and by a little while, I mean several years, and you remember back to Noel's series through Galatians, you should be pumping the brakes right here. Because, if you remember back that far, 
At that time, he walked through showing us through Galatians how it was that Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf and his imputed righteousness to us makes us fully pleasing in Christ before God. Well, here the Apostle Paul is saying that he's praying that they would walk worthy and that they would be fully pleasing. So hold on a second. I thought I was. I thought salvation was by faith, not by living in a certain sort of way. Well, you would be correct to have that response. But look carefully at what Paul is saying. We have to remember that he is praying for people who are already in Christ. People who have been made saints by the blood of Jesus. We know that from verse 4, where he says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And he's also not saying that these Christians need to please the Lord in order to keep their salvation. That's nowhere in this text. We are, in fact, pleasing to God in Christ in the same sense as what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 14, that we have been perfected once for all time, even as we are being sanctified. We are pleasing to God because of what Christ has done. What Paul is praying for is that the manner of our lives would begin to align with who we already are in Christ. So he describes then this walking worthily in a way that is fully pleasing to God in this way of our lives becoming more and more like who God created us to be in four ways. You see it here in the text. The first, in the middle of verse 10, that we would bear fruit, that we would be bearing fruit. The way that you can think about this and understand this is the all wisdom and the spiritual understanding beginning to work their way through our lives as we begin to understand, oh, this is what it looks like to put up with that person and bear with them. Oh, this is what it looks like to love my spouse and raise my kids. This is what it looks like to exist in my workplace in a way that is honoring to the Lord. We begin to understand those things, but then... As we begin to understand them, we begin to take steps in the direction of actually doing those things. As we do that, we begin to bear fruit. And it's it's that external evidence of what God has been doing as we've been growing in the knowledge of his will that all of a sudden you can see it on the outside. Like Like those pulleys and belts that you can see doing the work on the outside. We begin to bear fruit in our lives And at the same time, we are growing in the knowledge of God. You see that he continues there. That we grow in the knowledge of God. Again, this is that cyclical aspect of knowing God and knowing his will. And they begin to feed into one another. And as this happens, and as our lives change, brothers and sisters, I can promise you that you desperately need what he prays for next. In verse 11... He prays that we would be strengthened for endurance and patience. Look at the way that he says it. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, we don't have the time to go into this too much, but when the Apostle Paul begins to think of God's glorious might, he's oftentimes thinking of and referring to that sort of power that God has that was able to take a dead person and raise him back to life. 
so that we could have life in Christ. That sort of power, it is what is necessary for what purpose? So that you may have great endurance and patience. The Apostle Paul addresses three significant challenges that those who are growing in the knowledge of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that we will face in life. We will face deceptive false teachers who will twist the gospel and try to trick us into thinking that we need to please God in order to keep or gain salvation. He walks through the tensions that are faced in relationships, many of those that we already heard about this morning. And he addresses the reality of persecution for those who follow after Christ. Those who are filled with the knowledge of God and follow him in this way, who are being sanctified by him, will need the resurrection power of Jesus to give us great endurance and patience as we go through this life in the gospel cycle of sanctification. And number four, he prays that we would be joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now up to this point, this is a little surprising to me. I don't know if it's surprising to you, but it's surprising to me as I read through this that up to this point, as I read these things, I read about growing in knowledge, wisdom, understanding, walking worthily, being fully pleasing, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge, being strengthened. These are great. There is nothing leading up to this point that made me smile. My cookie illustration made us smile, but none of these things made me smile. My, I didn't go this plus this plus this plus this equals joy. If anything, some of you, as we've been walking through this, have going this plus this plus this plus this equals do more and try harder. Do better. And it doesn't make sense that we would joyfully give thanks. Endurance is hard. Patience isn't necessary unless there's trouble. How can he say joyfully giving thanks to the Father? It is at this point that the turn from knowing fully and walking worthily turns in the direction of remember. And what he calls us and prays for us to remember is where the joy is found. Look at verses 12 through 14. He prays, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here we make the move from those pulleys that are spinning and those belts that are pulling, we, we move from the external evidences to the combustion chamber of the gospel that empowers the cycle of sanctification. All that has come before up to this point in the prayer are things that are more or less visible actions that take place through our lives, fruit that other people can see. But underneath all of that is the resurrection power of Jesus at work in the lives of those who have trusted Christ. The sort of power that qualifies, rescues, and redeems. This is why the Apostle Paul's prayer isn't, I'm not calling it the Christian cycle of sanctification. 
This is the gospel cycle of sanctification that is empowered by something that Jesus did, something that has already been accomplished, the source of the power of the Christian life that is not in us, but is in Christ. There are things, yes, that God is doing now in the Christian life as he is working in you, and there are ways that we will respond. But all of the now and the hereafter are based on what has already been done by God in Christ. Look at the way that he prays for the people. He prays that they would give thanks to the Father who has enabled them to share in the saints' inheritance in life. God has enabled everyone that he saves to share in the saints' inheritance in light through the single action of redemption of what Jesus did on the cross. If you look there, in verse 14, he says it this way, in him we have redemption, and then he defines redemption. How is it defined? Look there in the text. The forgiveness of sins. That's what redemption is. What does he mean by that? Well, the Apostle Paul has quite a body of work where he defines what he means by this. So we're just going to summarize this. But he frequently speaks of humans like me and you as being dead. Dead in our sins, in our rebellion against God. That we hated God and did not seek God. But in his grace, God sought a people. God in the flesh, in the man Jesus, willingly gave himself to be nailed to a cross. And something mysterious that I don't fully understand, but that has been promised to us, took place in that moment. That as Jesus hung on the cross, that God in his divine power and prerogative took our sins off of us and transferred those sins onto Jesus. And on Jesus, God poured out the wrath that was due to us for our rebellion against him so that the sin price, the legal debt for our sins could be paid, so that what was left for those of us who trust Jesus is not condemnation, is not judgment, but forgiveness and a new family. This is the work of redemption. And because of what Jesus has done, he invites us into the grave that our old nature would die with him. And then Jesus' resurrection invites us to trust him for a new kind of life where we begin to discover the purpose for which we were created as we live to the glory of God in all of life, when we begin trusting that he really did pay the sin debt, trusting him as we lay down our old nature in the grave, trusting that new life in him is better than old life with us, we experience the forgiveness of redemption. And in Paul's prayer, we see that the redeemed sinner experiences three really good things right away. The redeemed and forgiven are rescued. You see that here that he says in verse 13 that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. God rescues you out of the domain of darkness. And this means that sin, Satan, and death lose their ultimate hold on you. You're free Free to be who God created you to be. Not who you are trying to figure out who to be. 
You're free to find your eternal purpose. It won't always be easy. Sometimes sin will cling closely. Sin, uh, excuse me, Satan will still tempt at times. And the first death still awaits. But they've all been put to shame by the resurrection of Jesus. And sin's grasp on you will ultimately fail. Satan's tools are blunted. And death's power is about as strong as a pop gun. Because you've been rescued if you've trusted Christ. Not only does he rescue you, he transfers you. Because of Jesus' work on your behalf, you're headed for the king's country. You've been redeemed, you're forgiven, you're loved. Look at the way that he describes the son. He loves the son. You're headed to the king's country where love abounds, where you begin to experience the love of God. And third, the father has qualified in the, in the CSB here, it reads enabled. Look there in verse 12. He says that God, the Father, is the one who has enabled us to share in the, inherit, the saints' inheritance in the light. Think about this. Sinful people like us, people that come into places like this with wrecked lives, with messed up lives, we get to take part in a saint's inheritance? Yes, in Christ, by trusting him, yes. But it's actually better than that. Because it's an inheritance that only the saints receive. What that means is that by the blood of Jesus, you become a saint. Welcome to the induction of sainthood in what Christ has done. That whole sin mess that you've carried around, all the debts that you've owed to God, they're paid off in Christ when you trust him. You're free and clear. You're dressed in the new nature in Christ. And you're a saint seated with him in the heavenlies. But it gets even better. Because you see, this is an inheritance. It's not just a citizenship. You're not just in the king's country. This isn't just a sin stimmy check. This is an inheritance. This is something that's yours. And you know who gets the inheritance? The kids. The kids are the one who get the inheritance. And so the sinful, messed up, covering up, prideful, fearful people like me and like you who are forgiven when we trust Jesus, we're not just rescued and invited into the king's country. We're not just beautified by sainthood. We've been adopted into a family where love abounds. You've been invited into the eternal love relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We get a share in the inheritance of the Son who is loved. This is why we give thanks joyfully. Because all of this is done. All the verb tenses changed at the point that Paul got into this part of the prayer because it went from what's happening and what will happen to what's done and what's been accomplished for us. Therefore, we can give thanks joyfully as we endure, joyfully as we're patient, joyfully as we work out our salvation of what does it look like to walk worthily. On the basis of this redemptive work, the Apostle Paul prays that God's people would remember and give thanks joyfully to the Father. 
The moments, the seasons, and for some of us, the years will come when the gospel cycle of sanctification calls for endurance, great endurance and patience, needing the power of God to work in us. But even in this prayer, like he does in the middle of this letter, the Apostle Paul reaches out to us and invites us to lift our eyes. There is no pain, persecution, suffering, struggling, or sin that gets the last word. He calls us to look up and look back and remember what Christ has done and what he is doing. Look and see the work that has already been done. Remember your joy. Remember the reason for your joy at that cross and in that empty tomb, the forgiveness that you have received and give thanks because this isn't the end. Let the power of his resurrection course through your soul again. Look and turn your mind to all that will outlast every earthly joy and tear. Remember and know the God who has forgiven you. In his strength, seek the good works that he has prepared for you to walk in with his wisdom and understanding. As you wait for that day when you see Jesus face to face. Father, I thank you for the prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Colossae. I pray that what he asked would be true for us. I thank you for these gifts of grace. Amen.